we, we make up about 4% of the global population in America, yet we consume 55% of prescription drugs. So this tells you the stranglehold that Big Pharma has. At the FLCCC conference last month, I sat down with critical care physician and FLCCC co-founder Paul Merrick to get an update on what we currently know about spike protein-induced diseases in people who've gotten COVID versus those who've gotten the vaccine. When you get the jab, the amount of spike protein is exponentially higher than with natural infection. And that's why we see all these complications from the vaccine. We discuss the best treatments for ridding the body of Spike and dive into the battle he has been fighting to legitimate the use of vitamins, lifestyle changes, and cheap and effective repurposed drugs in healthcare. The amount of data supporting the concept that vitamin D deficiency causes cancer and that supplementing with vitamin D reduces your risk of cancer is overwhelming. And yet, nobody knows about it and nobody cares. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Dr. Paul Merrick, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Yan. It's a pleasure and wonderful to be here today. There are a number of things I want to talk to you about because you have been doing some incredibly fascinating research for a range of things beyond COVID, and I really want to get into that. But before we go there, I want to, I want to start with COVID. And I want to understand what the state of spike-related disease is. What do we understand about it now? How does it work? And uh, what are the best treatments? Yeah, so it's a good question. And so our understanding is evolving and continues to evolve. Um, the truth of the matter is that spike protein is probably one of the most toxic compounds that um, human beings can be exposed to. And it, 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 its toxicity is through multiple different pathways that we're just beginning to understand. So, you know, spike causes profound inflammation. It activates clotting, it activates a clotting cascade, it activates platelets. It causes autoantibodies. It causes damage to the endothelium of blood vessels. Um, it causes autoantibodies. Um, and then it has some really bad effect, effects on genes and many of the genes involved in cancer suppression. So we now know that spike protein, and although people want to ignore and deny it, actually activates many genetic pathways which lead to cancer and it's a form of cancer called turbo cancers and this is related to the spike protein so it does all kinds of really weird stuff and we know the spike protein itself gets into the nucleus and um, you know whether it affects DNA you know is a contentious issue but it appears it goes into the nucleus and does stuff in the nucleus um, we know it affects fertility. Mm. Um, so probably the best studies are, are this uh, done by this uh, really brave pathologist in, in Germany. So in the US, if someone dies unexpectedly, you can't look for spike. It's not allowed. But Dr. Arnie Burkholdt in Germany has done over 75 autopsies on patients who've died post-vaccination. And the findings are astonishing. And to be truthful, scary, because basically the body is packed with spike protein um, in a way that's completely unbelievable. There's spike protein in the brain, spike protein in the heart, spike protein in the vasculature. 
and it actually causes a disease of blood vessels which you see with syphilis. Um, it causes necrosis which is death of the wall of the blood vessel. It's called medial necrosis and the blood vessel ruptures. And there are not many diseases that do that. Syphilis is one of them. You know, cyanide kills you quickly. Spike protein kills you slowly. And so it's as toxic as cyanide, but this is a slow, progressive organ dysfunction leading to death. So it's really interesting how if you were to design a drug that for the treatment of COVID, um, it would look, be called ivermectin. And that's not a joke, just because it has all the properties that you would want in a drug to treat COVID. And this was a gift of nature. It was not manufactured in a lab. This was found in a golf course in Japan made by bacteria. So if you kill someone quickly, they die. But you know, the effect on, on the population is if they suffer and have chronic disease and then die, the health implications are enormous. And if you were to design a toxic protein which would disable um, people, it would look like spike protein. 1,700 amino acids, it's not a very long protein, but it is an astonishingly toxic protein. Well, so the question is, of course, that being able to distinguish between the spike that comes from COVID and the spike that comes from the vaccine, and this would be, you know, the variant of spike from a very, very, very early variant of spike. The persistence of the spike, which creates these diseases, is that primarily in the vaccine, or does that also happen in, with natural COVID? Yeah, so it's a good question, and it took me a while to figure this out. So, you know, when you get natural infection with SARS-CoV-2, and we know this, there's really good data, the virus, the active replicating virus, lasts for about five days. And so after five days, the messenger RNA, which the virus makes, to make all its proteins is destroyed by, by the body. So if you're immunocompetent, within five days the messenger RNA is gone and you're not, you're, you're not continue to make new spike protein. However, the messenger RNA that, that are in these jab things, they're not really vaccines, it's, it's a, a misnomer to call them a vaccine, or, or these are synthetic artificially manufactured mRNA. And so when you inject the mRNA, it doesn't stay in the arm. It actually circulates and goes to lymph nodes and organs. And we don't know for how long because the, you know, the longest study was 60 days. And after 60 days, there's still messenger RNA in, in the lymph nodes. And what that means is that if there's messenger RNA, it's making spike protein. So the bottom line of all of that is that with um, it's the, the load of spike protein, it's like it's a toxin. You know, it's like cyanide. A little bit of cyanide may not kill you, but a lot of cyanide is going to do some really bad damage. When you get the jab, the amount of spike protein is exponentially higher than with natural infection. And that's why we see all these complications from the vaccine. So, for example, you know, long COVID, which, which is not a, you know, you don't want to minimize it, but it is a self-limiting disease just because the amount of spike protein that's produced. And most people who get long COVID, you know, the average is four months and then they get better. We know with uh, the vaccine injured, these people have such a, a load of spike protein that two years, three years after the 
the jab, they're still highly symptomatic. And I think it's related to the load of spike protein. We saw uh, yesterday uh, some presentations from REACT-19 uh, basically showing the most common types of symptoms that come with vaccine injury. The most common ones seem to be more neurological and then the, the followed by the heart related ones. But maybe can you speak to that and maybe why, if, if I'm right, if, why that would be? Yeah. These patients have multiple systems which involve multiple organ systems. And so the average number of symptoms of a vaccine injury is about 20 to 23. Mm. And so they, they run a spectrum. So when these patients present to the physician, the physicians use pattern recognition to make a diagnosis. So because these patients have such diverse symptoms, that really doesn't fit in with a pattern that they've been taught. Almost always they say, well, this is stress, this is anxiety, this is a functional disorder, this is in your head, this isn't real. But it is real. It's just because the spike, you know, goes to every organ system and every organ system is involved. Unlike the natural infection, you know, this is put, the, the mRNA is placed in a lipid nanoparticle. And the lipid nanoparticle is actually was designed to deliver chemotherapy to the brain. So it, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. And so you're absolutely right. The More than 80% of patients post-vaccine have neurological symptoms. Um, and it's a very characteristic finding. So while you find it with long COVID, it's much more extreme. The symptoms are much more severe in the vaccine injured. And so these, you know, the neurological symptoms are brain fog. Uh, cognitive dysfunction, memory dysfunction, which is very disabling to most people. If you you know, if you can't think, you lose your ability to to remember things, and then there's some other disabling things. It, it sounds absurd, but tinnitus, which is ringing in the ears, uh, is quite common and quite distinct um, with with the spike protein. We're not sure why it happens, but it's common and exceedingly disabling because these people have ringing in their ears. 24-7, they can't sleep, and in fact, many actually consider suicide because it's such a troubling symptom. And so that's a neurological symptom, visual symptoms. And then the one which is probably the most disabling is the, these patients get a neuropathy. Um, so that's involvement of the small nerve fibers. And it seems to be a classic feature of spike protein-induced disease, particularly with the vaccine they get this small fiber neuropathy, which is profoundly disabling because it interferes with, you know, the, the small fibers are involved in pain sensation. So they have burning sensations. You know, they complain that their limbs are on fire. So they have severe burning, itching. And so if you ask the vaccine injured patient, if there's one symptom that they would want to get rid of, What's the most troubling? What's the most disabling? Without question, it's the small fiber neuropathy, which is profoundly disabling. Although sometimes, I don't know if this is the same thing, it manifests a bit lesser, like they call it a paresthesia, is it paresthesia, yes. is that right? So just, you know, some yeah, so weirdness, just, numbness, or... Exactly, it's a spectrum of paresthesias, which is numbness and tingling, and then it can progress to burning, and sensation of 
you know, fire that feels like their skin's on. And it's, it's basically, it's a progressive disease related to damage to the nerve fibers. So where are we at in terms of treatment now? I mean, you, you've had multiple iterations of a protocol, um, general uh, protocol, but then of course there's, you know, specific treatments for different people. I've had, you know, Bree Dressen on the show where she was actually treated at NIH and with something that would calm the immune system basically and she's, you know, profoundly helped her. Although that's not something that's offered offered to most people. So the problem with the vaccine is the people who invented and developed the vaccine didn't develop an antidote for the product that they made. They made this toxin, but they left it for us to try and figure out how to deal with this toxin. So, you know, most medicines that we know have toxicity, you know, we, we have a good idea how to deal with the toxicity. This, you know, was a black box. So we had to really start from scratch, you know, figuring out how does spike protein damage the patient and then what we can do. And so, you know, as we've learned about spike, we've learned about ways to deal with spike. The more spike protein you have, the worse the disease. So, so that's really important. And so, you know, you can look at how many times they've had COVID, how many shots they've had, and it gives you an index of how, how, how much spike they have. Well, so, so let's go to treatment. Basically, you're saying that the less spike you can have in you, the better. That's the, that's the number one. And, and then somehow the lipid nanoparticles play into this as well. But what is the state of the knowledge of the treatment? <laughs> yeah, so the yeah. first thing is avoid being spiked. You know, if you've been vaccinated, don't get boosters. You want to limit further exposure to spike. No more jabs. Secondly, if you get COVID, you want to be treated early because the longer you allow it to linger, the more spike protein. So I think that's just a basic common sense principle. And then what you need to do is get rid of the spike. So one has to be careful of these so-called detoxification protocols, potions, devices. You know, I call it the Barbie detox device where, you know, you put Barbie into a, a it's like a container with water with electrodes and somehow it detoxes Barbie. So you have to be careful because there are unscrupulous people who will take advantage of people who are suffering and desperate. So th there is no such thing as detoxification potions or devices. What you need to do is help the body get rid of spike. And so the body has a, you know, an evolutionary process which was discovered in yeast called autophagy or autophagy or people, people <laughs> mark how I say it, which is truly an astonishing process. And so what the body does is when it detects foreign protein, misfolded protein, dysfunctional protein, it destroys it because it figures out this is not good, I want to get rid of it. And so what it does is it, it goes through this autophagy process. It's like the garbage collection system of the cell. It's the phagocytes, if I recall yeah, correctly. Yeah, so right? what it does yeah. is it causes these phagosomes, so it invaginates the foreign protein into a vesicle, which then fuses with a lysosome, which has enzymes which break down the contents. So it's the garbage disposal system. You know, it collects the garbage and then puts the garbage through this garbage slicing machine and trashes the garbage. <laughs> it's an ingenious system and it's evolved over millions of years. So it's how the cell deals with, with these 
toxic proteins. So what you want to really do is, is embrace it and enhance the ability of the cell to break down these proteins. And so much of what we've, I've learned and we've learned is, you know, we have enormous, enormous potential of self-repair, self-healing. And so many of the drugs patients take are toxic. What we really want to do is embrace the ability of the, the host to heal itself. We want to enhance that ability. And so you want to activate autophagy. And the, the, the most potent method of activating autophagy is called intermittent fasting or time-related feeding because there's this biological switch we have. And it's called the mTOR switch. And so whenever you eat, you switch off autophagy. Just switches it off through the mTOR pathway. And so glucose and insulin and proteins switch off this, this process. However, when you deprive the cell of glucose and protein, it switches on autophagy and it breaks down protein. And so this is the way we were designed. You know, you know Neanderthal man, you know, my and your cousin, probably closer to me than you, <laughs> is that we didn't eat all the time. You know, this is a reasonably new phenomenon, you know, with processed foods and supermarkets and 7-Elevens up the road. People eat all the time. They snack. I mean, snacking is like a, hmm. a Western phenomenon. What's even worse, they'll sit in front of the TV after dinner. So they've had dinner, then they'll sit in front of the TV and snack on, on processed food and carbohydrates, which is terrible. Because, first of all, it never allows autophagy to switch on. Mm. And more importantly, autophagy is really important for brain recovery when you sleep. You know, you have to consider why do we sleep? It's not an accident. It's really important for brain regeneration. Clear out all the metabolic products and to allow all the synapses to regenerate. We, we know that sleep is vital. During sleep, you undergo autophagy. And if you eat before you... Um, you go to sleep, it does two really bad things. The one is it switches off autophagy, so you don't do it. And then the second day, there's a remarkable system in the brain called the glymphatic system. So this is the lymphatic system of the brain. And it does the same thing. It's like washes out the metabolic byproducts from metabolism to get rid of them. And impaired um, lymphatic flow is linked to many neurodegenerative diseases as is deficient autophagy. So if you eat before you go to sleep, you limit autophagy and you limit this glymphatic flow. The other thing that's really good for glymphatics and autophagy is exercise. Imagine such a thing, <laughs> exercise. And of course, alcohol is bad. So they're very simple maneuvers that people can do, you know, to improve autophagy and um, improve glymphatic flow. So this is really important for getting rid of spike protein, but the implications are much further because we now know that it prevents aging, it prevents Alzheimer's disease, it likely reduces the risk of cancer, um, it reduces risk of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. So, you know, we started this journey looking at intermittent fasting to get rid of spike. But as you know, the implications are now far, far reaching, and that's why we've gone on this new journey. So, getting back to Spike, it's essential that people change their diet. 
Now, you don't have to do strict intermittent fasting like I do. You know, you can eat within a six to eight hour window, and then the rest of the time you don't eat. Okay, and it's different from starvation. There's a very, it's important to distinguish. This is not starving human beings. And metabolically, they act very differently. If you starve someone, the body adapts by decreasing the basal metabolic rate mm, and mm. decreasing growth hormone to switch things off. Paradoxically, with time-related feeding, you actually maintain or increase basal metabolic rate and you increase growth hormone. It's a fascinating phenomenon. So, you know, people pay tens of thousands of dollars to get growth hormone. Um, you don't need to do that. You need to just do periodic feeding and your body naturally makes growth hormone. So uh, it has truly astonishing benefits. It sounds like there's a simple recipe here. And just like, how do you activate the time-restricted eating versus the starvation? I think the first step is to start eating food. Okay, it sounds absurd, but to concentrate on eating real food and not processed food. I think that's step one, number one. And so what you need to do at your pantry at home is get rid of all the bad food. So you don't have an opportunity to snack on bad food. And then what you want to do is maybe miss one meal. Breakfast is probably the best meal to miss. So you still have lunch and you still have an early dinner. Must be early. And you can see how that differs from um, starving, where you're not eating food. And then what you gradually do is increase the window of time-restricted eating. You're, only, you're going to eat with a, maybe you start off, you eat within a window of 12 hours, then 10 hours, then eight hours, then six hours. So, you, But it's really important that when you eat, you actually have real food that's good food. And then the, the periods where you're fasting, you have liquids. It's really important not to get dehydrated. So you can drink water is fine, no juices, and coffee is fine. Coffee actually activates autophagy and has really important phytochemicals that are important. Don't add artificial sweeteners. Don't add milk to it. If you want to add thick cream, so you want to prevent adding, you know, glucose, which will break your ketosis. So um, it's, there is an important difference between someone who's starved and someone who's doing intermittent feeding. So with, or time-restricted eating. With time-restricted eating, you should not lose lean body mass. You should lose fat mass. So that's really important. Whereas with starvation, you break down muscle as a source of fuel and that you don't want to happen. So with time-restricted feeding you, you utilize the fat stores, the excess fat stores, you break down the fat but you prevent breaking down muscle and that's really important. You actually release ketone bodies from your fat stores so you're breaking down the fat stores. You have to limit you know not eat for a number of hours because firstly what will happen is you'll use glucose which is stored in the liver as glycogen. And once that's depleted, then you'll start breaking down, converting the, the visceral fat, your belly fat, into ketone bodies. So you'll be breaking down fatty, fatty tissue. So, you know, my impression had been that to be in ketosis, you can only eat a very small amount of carbohydrate over time, right? Yes. But here you're saying that if you're, if you're, not eating for say 12 hours or longer, um, you can actually eat anything that's wholesome 
and you'll still achieve that same state. There are various phases of this, and in fact there's no human requirement to eat carbohydrates. So unlike proteins and fats, which you need, humans can survive without carbohydrates. So if you, if you have a diet which is low in carbohydrates or no carbohydrates, you're going to start making ketone bodies. So ketone bodies, both the brain and the body use as a source of energy. So instead of using glucose, you use ketones. And they are, they, they, in fact, the heart functions much better functionally using ketones as opposed to using glucose or fatty acids. So you, you can get into ketosis without doing time-restricted feeding. The two are, are related, but time-restricted feeding basically means you don't eat for a period of time. But ketosis means you just have a low carbohydrate intake. So you can be in ketosis eating three meals a day. All you're doing is you restricting carbohydrate intake. So you can be in ketosis without doing time-restricted feeding. And so there's some really interesting tricks that they play. So when you go to a restaurant, they start the meal off with bread. Why do they do that? And it's nice, it's tasty, it's warm. So what they do is you have the bread, which is high in starch, it's processed. It causes a big spike in glucose, which then causes a big spike in insulin. What does insulin do? It activates your hunger center. So it makes you hungry. So if they do that, then you're going to order more food and you're going to eat more. So they do it on purpose. What you want to do is actually have the salad first, have greens first, have the bread at the end of the meal. Because what the greens do is it slows down the absorption of glucose. It forms this like mucus lining in the small intestine to slow absorption of glucose. So you can have the same meal. It's fascinating. Studies have done this. There's this very nice Swedish woman called the glucose goddess. And basically what she says is the order you eat the food makes an enormous difference. She looks at the glucose profile. So if you eat pasta or starch at the beginning of the meal, you get this big spike. But if you leave it towards the end of the meal, you get a flat curve. And so these are really you know, basic things about how to prepare food and how to eat food. You know, don't start a meal with starch. It's the worst thing. The other thing which is really cool is if you're going to like have birthday cake, take some apple cider vinegar before you, you do the starch because it flattens the curve. Somehow the apple cider vinegar acts on the GI tract and it releases hormones that flattens the curve. So have some apple cider vinegar before you have a bad meal. So the bottom line is you, you're linking time-restricted feeding, which means you eat during a particular window, and you want to eat real food, and you couple the two. So starvation is basically when you, when you restrict all nutrients to the human body. So this is not happening because basically you have a period of time-restricted eating. You eat during a particular window, but you eat nutrient-dense foods. Mm. You eat foods that are high in nutritional value. So these are not processed foods. These is real food. We know that eight, Americans, 80% of what they eat is processed food. Mm -hmm. So you may ask, what's the difference? Well, if it looks like food, it's likely food. If it comes in a box, has a label and a package, that's probably not food. And we know that food has all kinds of preservatives, chemicals, additives that are really toxic. 
Um, you know, I read a fascinating paper recently. It, it was actually got the Banting Award by the Diabetes Association. And so that's like one of the highest honors which was bestowed upon this researcher. And basically what she has shown is that it's these chemicals and additives and flavorants and preservatives in food that actually act on the pancreas to release, cause oxidative injury and insulin release. And the insulin release then causes obesity. So rather than the obesity causing insulin resistance, she's postulating that it's this toxic diet that's causing insulin release that's causing obesity. Uh, the truth of the matter is probably both are operative, but I think we don't realize the profound toxicity of the food we eat. It's nutritionally devoid, it's essentially processed as high glucose and most importantly fructose. So fructose is different from glucose and most of these things have high, high levels of corn, corn fructose and fructose is metabolized to fat in the liver. It causes the fatty liver which causes this process of insulin resistance. So fructose is really toxic. So you know obviously there's a lot of fructose in fruit. So one has to be careful about how much fruit you eat. You know, Fruit is okay but you really want to limit the amount of fruit. And so the best fruits are berries, blueberries, strawberries, blackberries because they have the lowest glycemic index, they have fiber, but they have fructose. And so fruit juices are probably as toxic as, as it comes because it's fructose without the fiber, causes a rapid spike in blood glucose. So basically what I'm saying is by very simple changes in the way we eat, we can have a profound metabolic effect. And so this has other implications because it's estimated that 40% of cancers are caused by insulin resistance. So insulin resistance causes high insulin, which causes insulin growth factor, which activates cancer. So there's a direct correlation between metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and cancer. So coronary disease is not due to cholesterol. That's a myth. That was a myth perpetuated by the food industry going back to the 1960s. Coronary disease is caused by insulin resistance. Simple as that. Paul, you say this so with such conviction. How is it that you know, everything we know about the role of cholesterol is wrong? It's called a hoax. Much like much of COVID is a hoax, this is called the saturated fat cholesterol hoax. And this was started in the 1960 by a, a physician called Ansel Keys, who postulated that saturated fats were bad. And so they actually did studies. So they had a group had saturated fat. They then changed the diet to vegetable oils. So you know all of these corn oil, soy oil, canola oil, flaxseed oil. And so what you may want to know is that um, Procter and Gamble actually bought the American Heart Association who promoted this diet. But there have been like five randomized studies and all have shown exactly the same thing. What such a diet does is causes the cholesterol to stay the same, cardiac disease stays the same or goes up, but your risk of cancer goes up exponentially. So this um, obsession with cholesterol and saturated fat is a hoax. It was a hoax perpetuated by the food industry and the USDA 
um, are part of this hoax and they continue to advise a diet low in saturated fat and high in vegetable oils. So they are captured, you know, we, we think the NIH and CDC are captured. We know that probably all the agencies are captured and the USDA is captured because the food pyramid is completely upside down. Hmm. Um, so there's nothing wrong with saturated fat. And in fact, you know, a really good paper in The Lancet, you know, so this is the Ivory Tower Journal. They've looked epidemiologically and found that the more fat you eat, the lower your risk of cardiac disease saturated fat. So it's not saturated fat that's the enemy, it's these polyunsaturated synthetic manufactured vegetable oils. And the use of soy vegetable oil in this country is ex gone exponentially in terms of tons, tons are used. So there is this, you know, this, this low fat hoax. You go to the supermarket, everything is low fat. So that's actually what you don't want. Because if it's low in fat, it's high in carbohydrates and glucose. So when you go, you actually want to look for high fat, not low fat. That's how completely upside down this hoax is. Oh, there was this, you know, this campaign that eggs were bad. Don't eat eggs. Oh, eggs are wonderful. It's one of the most nutritious sources of nutrient-dense food and eggs do not increase your cholesterol. Maybe if you have 30 or 40 eggs a day, but one or two eggs a day is perfectly fine. It's a highly dense nutritional food. So you can see how deep this hoax and corruption and this fraud goes. Let's just jump back. You're basically saying in order to deal with the fact that you may have had multiple jabs, you have this potentially this spike uh, being created in your body, potentially causing problems, the number one thing you can do right now is basically induce autophagy. Yes, it sounds so simple, but that's, you know, what I've realized is it's the simple things in life that have the most profound effect. It's the simple things in life. The more complicated it is, the less likely it's to succeed. So just by altering your diet, you can have a profound effect on getting rid of spike, reducing insulin resistance, and improving overall health. But there are some other things you can do. So there is a product called natokinase. So natokinase is an enzyme made from a, by bacteria when it ferments soy. So again, this is a product of nature. This is not a pharmaceutical conception. Japanese people have been taking natto for hundreds or thousands of years. What's truly astonishing about natokinase, it has a number of really, you know, very important effects in people who've been spiked. The one thing it does is it breaks down extracellular spike. So what autophagy does is breaks down spike within the cell. What natokinase does, it breaks down spike outside the cell. The other thing that natokinase does, which is truly astonishing, is one of the problems we said with spike is it activates clotting and it completely deranges the clotting system. Mm -hmm. And it, what it essentially does is it creates these fibrinous clots which you can't break down. Natokinase, via a number of pathways, breaks down these fibrinous clots. So again, you know, we have a simple intervention through multiple pathways can be profoundly 
um, advantageous in people who've been spiked because it deals with the clotting and it deals with breaking down the spike. But of course, it's generic. You can't patent it. So therefore, you can't make a lot of money out of it, so no one's interested. So that's the, the common theme we talk about. There are these wonderful products of nature that have profound biological effects that were given to us. It was a gift of nature that have these enormous properties of self-healing. So these on, this is not you know, Paxlovid or one of these other toxic medications that you spend hundreds of dollars on. Uh, so I have to say, you're not sounding like the typical you know, ICU doctor. So I worked in the ICU. I had swallowed the Kool-Aid. I had followed conventional medicine. That's what I did. Fortunately, in the ICU, you know, most of our therapies were based on physiology, a good understanding of physiology, and then how to deal with physiology rather than corrupt medications. But it has started this journey, and I've realized how completely corrupt and fraudulent traditional medicine is. I was a traditional physician. I believed what they told us. I believed what was published in the journals. I believed the agencies. And you can't trust them. You really have to think about getting back to basics and that the human body has enormous capacity for self-renewal self and self-healing and that there are natural ways to, to embrace that. And there are products that are natural products that can help the body restore itself. And that makes so much sense. Intermittent fasting, you buy less food, so you, you're saving money. So no one's making money out of this, but if we actually adopted this across the country, we could reduce our expenditure on healthcare by at least 50%. This is kind of a unfathomable claim, almost. Like, it seems so simple, right? Yeah, and so, you know, more recently I've become interested in vitamin D. So, you know, what we used to do is we'd live indoors in our little cave and then we'd sleep with no artificial light, which is really important because having darkness at night is really important to make melatonin. Um, that's what the pineal gland does. If your pineal gland is not functioning optimally, you don't make melatonin, it significantly increases your risk of cancer particularly breast cancer. So night shift work is actually classified by the EPA as a type two carcinogen because these synthetic lights switch off melatonin, they don't have infrared. So you know what we did during the night was we were in the cave, during the day we went outdoors, we went hunting, we got sunshine, we got blue light. Blue light is important for the day to switch off the pineal gland um, and make an infrared. And we've disturbed that natural cycle of life. And so we need to get back to basics, you know. Walk outdoors, get sunshine, eat once or twice a day. Re-establish your circadian rhythm where you have darkness at night and light during the day. Um, it's, it's, it's just common sense. And so um, vitamin D is so critical. There's overwhelming data. It's not, this is not fringe. There's overwhelming data that people who have low vitamin D levels, their risk of cancer is increased exponentially. And interestingly enough, if you live in a high latitude, so closer to the North or South Pole, you get less ultraviolet B, you make less vitamin D, you have a higher risk of cancer. 
In fact, I'll tell you, there was a study recently published in a peer-reviewed journal which they looked at three simple interventions to reduce cancer. It was a prospective randomized study. They gave patients 4,000 units of vitamin D, one gram of omega-3, plus a simple home exercise program. They reduced the risk of cancer by 50%. Just think of the implications. And so I would add one or two other compounds. I would probably add melatonin to that. I would probably add metformin and treat insulin resistance. You could eliminate cancer from this planet. But so while you would save enormously, our healthcare expenditure would go down, but the pharmaceutical profits would go down too. And obviously that's the issue, is that it goes against the pharma narrative, which is to sell them drugs that don't cure them. They want you to take drugs forever that don't cure disease, they just suppress symptoms. It's a very sobering thought because I think people need to take matters in their own hands. You know, I think people don't want to get cancer. They don't want to get metabolic syndrome. So there are simple common sense things you can do to reduce your risk. Take vitamin D, take melatonin, do some exercise, get some sunshine. We're not talking about high tech interventions here. And then obviously, you know, we need to get more in tune with ourselves and we need to, the level of stress and anxiety and depression in, in this society is out of control, the people, uh, number of people addicted to substances, mm. through lifestyle changes that are just common sense. We can improve our health, our well-being, our longevity and our happiness. I do want to talk about one ICU intervention that you actually developed. It was this intravenous uh, vitamin C protocol um, that you know was ostensibly highly effective. I mean, that's 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 why you published it, right? And you know, as you came to adopt an unorthodox view to dealing with COVID, and you know, were attacked for it, even your sepsis protocol came under very serious attack. Um, and I, I might add, this is the thing that I find interesting about this protocol. It's also something that's very cheap and can be easily adapted in the developing world and save lives. You know, it's just kind of a, uh, a wonderful thing on the face of it. But so t I want you to tell me a little bit about this because I think your this protocol, which I know like a lot of people were thrilled with at one yeah. point, suddenly became toxic. Yes. And <laughs> metaphorically. Yes. Um, so obviously this was a repurposed drug which was challenging the narrative and the status quo because clearly cheap off-label repurposed drugs need to be banned. So what people may not know, I mean vitamin C is actually really a hormone rather than a vitamin. And so all species on this planet except for, for whatever reason humans and guinea pigs make vitamin C. So when your little puppy dog or your cat or your goat gets stressed, it actually makes vitamin C. It's a stress hormone. It's very important for dealing with stressful reactions. Humans have lost the ability to make vitamin C. We have a, a fatal mutation in the biosynthetic pathway, so we can't make vitamin C. And so we know if you take you know, animals, if you stress them, they make vitamin C in their liver. The, the adrenal gland makes vit excretes vitamin C. So it's not by accident that 
that animals make vitamin C. It's really very important. It's a potent antioxidant, has anti-inflammatory properties. It's very important for making um, hormones from the adrenal gland. It has anti-inflammatory, antibacterial properties. It's a very important stress hormone, but for whatever reasons, humans have a genetic mutation that allows, they can't make it. So what is the implication? Well, it's simple. When humans are stressed, give them vitamin C. We, I stumbled upon this you know, by accident because I had this patient in the ICU who was clearly dying of vitamins, of sepsis. There was no question of doubt she was dying. And so as a clinician, when you have a patient who's dying, you know, this was pre-COVID, you do whatever you can to save the patient's life, even if it's not conventional, but as long as it's, it's not illegal, as long as it's approved drug, you're gonna try it. And so I had read the work of Dr. Fowler on vitamin C. So I thought, why, why not? Let me give it a try. And so I was expecting this woman to die. When I came back the next day, not only was she not dying, she was sitting up in bed communicating, she was extubated, her kidney function improved. And so this woman who was dying walked out of the ICU three days later. So I thought, wow, that's impressive. I thought, well, maybe it's just a one-off thing. So I thought, I'll do it again. Same thing. I did it again. Same thing. So when observation is scientifically valid, it's reproducible. So I kept on doing it because it was saving patients' lives. So at that point, I said, no one's going to believe me. I need to do a randomized study. So I said to the nurses, I'm going to do a randomized study. The nurses wouldn't let me do it because they said it's unethical for me to withhold a therapy which I know saves lives, saves kidneys, saves patients. That to give them placebo would be unethical. And I agreed with them because how could I, in good conscience, I have something which can help patients how can I deny it to them? So we, you know, we collected a series of 48 patients. We then compared it retrospectively to a similar match group, and we showed a marked reduction in mortality. What was interesting, and I actually had forgotten about this, is sepsis at that time was used as a, a, as a marker of hospital quality of care. There was a lot of focus by CMS and national health agencies on sepsis outcome. And so what had happened, there was a company that, I suppose I can mention their name, Truvent, who was collecting data for CMS independently. And so they provided data to the chief medic, the chief CEO of my hospital, who at that time was a really very nice man. He was actually interested in patient outcomes. He didn't last long, obviously. But he gave me data showing that once we introduced this protocol at our hospital, the hospital mortality from sepsis, independently of my data, went from 20% to 8%. People thought this was snake oil medicine, this was fraudulent data, this just didn't make sense, but we had independent validation. So, you know, I did forget about that, which becomes important because with COVID, but you know... Just one quick question. Why did they think it was snake oil? The head of a sepsis the Global Sepsis Forum, who worked in Australia, basically tweeted out that this was snake oil medicine and that I was a snake oil doctor. They just didn't like the idea that a vitamin, which is cheap, could save people's lives.
it was just it was against the narratives. You know, it has to be an expensive molecule from pharma, which is which is you know specifically designed, and the idea that vitamin C, <laughs> you know, which is cheap, readily available, completely safe, should actually be able to have a significant impact in reducing mortality from sepsis was snake oil medicine. And just this is before COVID. This so was you were, before you were, COVID. You were about to talk about COVID, but this is before. So what, what did you think of them saying that? Oh, it was, I was personally offended. I was upset. I was disturbed because they went on this Twitter campaign to suggest that this was not real data, that I had somehow manipulated the data. This can't be real. And so, because I was going against mainstream medicine, <laughs> you know, I had no idea what was coming down the line, you know. And so, traditional medicine does not like challenges to the status quo. It's very, it's very disturbing to them, particularly when it's an off-label drug. It's a theme that, that I've now recognized, and you know, as my direction has changed in terms of metabolic syndrome, diabetes, cancer, I've realized that there are many repurposed drugs that are highly effective for these conditions. But And this is based on the existing literature. We've been talking about this. This is the thing that's astounding to, and to most people, frankly, right? This idea that in the established literature, in many cases, deeply researched, many papers, tens of papers, hundreds of papers, right, will tell you that these things work but there's, it's not known in the collective consciousness, even among medical doctors. Absolutely, most medical doctors don't know because they, they've been isolated from this. It's brainwashing, propaganda, manipulation. And so I use vitamin D because the amount of data supporting the concept that vitamin D deficiency causes cancer and that supplementing with vitamin D reduces your risk of cancer is overwhelming and yet nobody knows about it and nobody cares. Medicine is controlled by big pharma. The food industry is controlled by the big nutrition companies. And I think they're in cahoots to keep Americans as unhealthy as they can by promoting bad food, which causes all of these diseases for which you take drugs, which are not curative. They suppress the symptoms. They don't treat the disease. And we need a reawakening because this current medical system is broken. You know, our goal now is to educate clinicians, healthcare workers, and the public that they need to be empowered. You know, Epoch Times is wonderful in that respect because it does speak the truth. You know, I'm not making this stuff up. You know, it's not like I'm taking some psychedelic drug that's making it's disturbing my thought process. In fact, there was a paper written on vitamin D deficiency in New England Journal of Medicine. So, you know, that's considered, you know, the, the gold standard. And in this review paper, they beautifully describe how vitamin D deficiency causes cancer and how if you supplement, it reduces the risk. So the data's there. But physicians have been shielded from the truth and the science. There's an added uh, uh, part of the story with respect to the sepsis protocol, which I, I, I want you to talk about. Yeah, so, you know, obviously, because of, you know, our, our involvement in promoting off-label drugs 
and alternative protocols and challenging the narrative, I became a target. And so what better way to um, embarrass me, discredit me, disgrace me, to actually suggest that my research is fraudulent. So there, there, there was a um, internet physician in Australia who basically went on the internet and made these outrageous claims that my, he said basically within five minutes of reading my study, the vitamin C study, it was clear that the data was made up and so he, he perpetuated this, this accusation on Twitter. He sent notices to, to most of the um, social media companies that were promoting the narrative and he actually wrote a letter to both my hospital that I worked at and the journal basically stating that my paper was fraudulent, the data was fabricated, and the paper needed to be retracted. And so I should say this gentleman, this individual who, you know, we, we absolutely are certain he's getting funding from certain um, sources, sources, let's put it that way, had actually written papers and tweets discrediting ivermectin, discrediting hydroxychloroquine. So this was not just a isolated um, event. This was a coordinated attack on me and vitamin C and repurposed drugs. So what happened is the journal got this complaint. They looked at the complaint. They went through investigation and then they wrote us a letter saying that this complaint was completely false and had no validity. But they said at the same time this happened, they received a new complaint <laughs> um, that there was some aberration in our inclusion and exclusion criteria for selecting patients, which, which violated ethical rules. And so they didn't state where the claim came from, but I'm certain where it came from. So the hospital, they got rid of me. So, you know, when, when we showed vitamin C was actually saving lives, and it did save lives, we had really good data, as I explained to you. Our nurses were absolutely convinced it helped. They could see it with their own eyes. And so I was a hero. But then COVID came, and, you know, they didn't like what I was saying, so I became the anti-hero. They had to get rid of me, and as part of the, the, their attempt to discredit me, they then filed this complaint with the journal, uh, um, accusing me of uh, scientific misconduct. So then the journal did another investigation which went on a year and at the end of it, you know, this is like two weeks ago, they basically cleared us. You know, they said um, there's no validity for any of these uh, accusations. We were vindicated. What they had requested was to change in two words in the methods section which really were inconsequential. So the results stand, the discussions stand, the conclusion, they just wanted two minor changes in the methods section. We were, you know, this became a major issue because if the paper had been retracted, which was their goal, this would have suggested that the research on vitamin C was fraudulent and had no validity and would have ended um, the use of vitamin C for sepsis. And so sepsis is a really important disease. And so we have a simple intervention that can save lives. 20 million people a year, yes, globally. Globally. Yeah. 
in a way, this, this is a victory for me, but really it's a victory for medicine, it's a victory for science. And hopefully, you know, people will now say, you know, our, our paper was scrutinized. They went out of their way. They went out of the way to find fault with my paper. So they had scientists and epidemiologists and all kinds of people trying to find fault with our paper. And all they could come up with was changing two words. So in a way, it does validate our research more than, than, than it was before, because they've now said it stands. And I think that's really important for, for, for patients with sepsis, which, as I said, is a major killer across the world. And you can use it in resource-poor countries. I mean, should that be what our goal is, is to help humanity? We, we make up about 4% of the global population in America, yet we consume 55% of prescription drugs. How's that possible? 80% of prescription opiates are written in this country. So this tells you the stranglehold that Big Pharma has on this country. But you know, the, the reality is, is that there are cheap repurposed drugs that can be deployed globally, that can have a massive effect on improving the health and welfare of humanity. Those are, you know, astounding numbers. Again, I think, you know, just, you, you know there's something deeply wrong knowing that. I mean. Yeah, so that's, that's the, what's so troubling is, you know, once you see the lies, the deceit, the dishonesty, you can't unsee it. And then you just realize the depth of this corruption. You know, we've been brainwashed. But I think the good thing is that, you know, we're exposing this. And, you know, I think there's simple, you know, simple interventions that, that people can use to empower themselves to improve their health. And so they need to be educated, they need to be informed. You know, when you choose a physician, you need to engage in a conversation just to get an idea where they sit on the spectrum. And so if they are open to the use of repurposed drugs, they're open to vitamin D and vitamin C, ask them out what they think about the vaccine. You know, because, you know, if they are still pushing the vaccine, they're obviously captured and brainwashed. Patients can choose their healthcare providers, and they should select them carefully. FLCCC has a network of physicians, right, that they recommend. Yes. How do you make those choices? Yeah, so, you know, we're working on the list, so it's not ideal because, you know, obviously we can't screen every physician who wants to be listed. What we're actually thinking of doing is, is maybe certifying physicians that, you know, if they watch our our educational modules that will give them a certificate of attendance, so, you know, a, a, a stamp of approval, uh, which is obviously difficult to do. You know, we, we don't want to administer tests and all kinds of things, but it's very important. The kind of doctor you have will determine the treatment you get and will determine the outcome. So it's very important you select your physician wisely. So, you know, we, we can't... Um, scrutinize every clinician but we are working on a network we're working on certification we're actually thinking of a collaborative project with react 19 to develop a network of clinicians who can manage the vaccine injured um, so i think that's a starting point but i think it's also in you know when you look for a new physician you know if they don't have time to speak to you then you don't have time for them 
you know, because you, you, you want to have trust in them. And there are, there are some very good physicians out there who understand the, the, the corruption in the system, who really want to do what they were trained to do, you know, treat patients, to follow the Hippocratic principle, to, to, to you know, follow true informed consent, to help people. Uh, and and um, so there are good physicians out there. You just need to find them. So any final thoughts as we finish up? Well, firstly, thank you. Thank you for this conversation. And I think people need to think about getting back to basics and common sense and, you know, being able to think for themselves, not being told what to think. So these are important issues to think about. And so read about it, think about it, explore it, and, you know, go on this new adventure. For me, it's been a really exciting adventure because it's, it's opened my eyes and I think it's opened, you know, your eyes. And there's no reason that we all can't go on this wonderful adventure. And we hopefully will live happier, healthier, and more fulfilling lives. Well, Paul Merrick, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Dr. Paul Merrick and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Janja Kellick. Mm -hmm.